When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 66. Today's episode is all about getting unstuck and becoming limitless. You're basically the only person who gets to decide that you're going to take the shot. I believe that like dream it and you can be it, I don't think is real. I think you have to start being it before you can dream it. Like you put one foot in front of the other and that shows you competence. And every time you show more and more competence, you can live with more and more confidence. And I think the difference between dream it to be it and be it and then you can dream it is that you can actually have bigger dreams if you start being the thing that you're hoping to be. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Mind Love is a Castbox original. You can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but Castbox is pretty awesome, so I hope you'll give it a try. And tap that cute little button that says subscribe. More subscribers means even better guests and even more value. Plus, it helps grow the show so more people can find it. And if you ask me, everyone can use a little more Mind Love. Hello, friends. When I was growing up, I really felt like I had everything figured out. I was good at school in general. I got good grades on tests. I usually aced my homework. And it's not even like I was studying all the time. I was just a master at cramming or pulling an all-nighter the night before a test, even though we had the entire semester to prepare for it. Learning and school and projects, all of that just came naturally to me. It was kind of my jam. Somehow, between adolescence and adulthood, I lost that. I started viewing myself as distracted and restless and too ADD and a procrastinator. It got harder and harder for me to make any real progress on the big things in life. To be fair, it also could have been the trauma I was going through at the same time. It could have been working for companies or causes I wasn't really passionate about. I don't know. Probably both, though. But whatever happened, I felt like I was coasting. I felt stuck. And I felt stuck for years. I have always read a lot, and so I knew what all the books said. I had to take a leap. I had to make some risky moves and essentially start over to find something more fulfilling. The problem was, at the time, taking that leap sounded even scarier than being stuck in a miserable, stable job. And yeah, I put air quotes around stable there because that company ended up shutting down. But how was I going to pay the bills? I live in one of the most expensive cities in the U.S., and I had already been paid startup wages for the last few years. Whenever my paycheck increased even just a little bit, somehow so did my expenses. Typical. But eventually, something in me snapped, and I was ready to take that leap no matter what the stakes were. So how did I get from stuck in the mud to leaping, arms flailing into my future, into my passion. How does anyone? 
That's what we're talking about today. Our guest is Laura Gassner-Otting. She teaches you how to ignore the rules that create your limits, align your energies and your actions, and do work that really matters so that you can live your best life. People call Laura a kick in the ass surrounded by a warm hug. The only two things I ever really need, right? Well, I'm excited for this interview because Laura brings both tough love and wisdom, and I'll help you see what it really takes to get out of your own way and find the success that you deserve. So three key things we will learn are how we limit ourselves and where those limits come from, the first steps to getting unstuck, and how to make bold moves to accelerate your success. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning mind love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the Miracle Tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 444-999. That's morning to 444-999. And now let's welcome Laura Gassner-Otting to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm doing so well. We were already chatting a little bit before this started, so I'm already so excited as to where this conversation can go. So to start out, let's get a little background on you. Yeah. So my name is Laura Gassner-Otting. I am the author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. And that book is based on 20 years of interviewing people in a career of executive search where I got to learn all about what people did, how they did it, and most importantly, why they did it. And the lessons that I've learned from that time brought me to this place where I now have figured out, I think, how we can make success actually equal happiness in our lives. You also have a lot of experience in the nonprofit space, which I love. My husband works with nonprofits too, creating their websites and software. And in the work that I've done with him, it's really inspired me to shape my path towards a more mission-driven purpose. But at the same time, that can feel like a lot of pressure. How has your experience working with nonprofits shaped your thoughts around purpose in general? Yeah, so it's sort of interesting because in the book, I do talk about nonprofits as a path to find happiness, as a path to find purpose. But I also, because I spent 20 years helping people find work in the nonprofit sector, whether they were nonprofit people already or whether they were transitioning from the corporate to the nonprofit sector, in fact, my first book is about that transition in particular, I feel like I am one of the few people who can actually say it's really important to find your purpose. And if that purpose is in the nonprofit sector, great. And if that purpose is not in the nonprofit sector, that's great too, right? So I'm not the person who's going to say the only way to find purpose is to have a higher purpose. What it allowed me to do is it allowed me to understand what people look like when they have purpose and how they act and what their energy is and how they flow when they have purpose so that I could understand how people who weren't in the nonprofit sector could also find that same kind of happiness and purpose in their lives. 
When you think about the word purpose now, what does it look like when somebody has real purpose for themselves on a smaller scale? So I think one of the ways we get purpose wrong is we think it has to be this like higher purpose and this lofty goal. And it has to be some kind of calling that is like Mother Teresa going and like feeding the lepers in India. And I looked up the word purpose and here's what it means. It means the reason for which something is done. And that's it. That's all it means. It doesn't mean, you know, wearing the white hat. It doesn't mean wearing the superhero cape. If your purpose is to cure cancer, I love it. Let's go make that happen. If your purpose is to live debt free, I love it. Let's go make it happen. If your purpose is to spend time raising your family, I love it. Let's go make it happen, right? Your purpose only has to be your purpose. And the only person who gets to vote about whether your purpose matters is you. Right. I just led a group of 70 people through a 30-day mindset transformation, and a week of the program is all around finding purpose. Well, one of the things that I teach is around releasing the pressure that we put on ourselves to find that purpose. And I know that might sound counterintuitive in a week dedicated to finding your purpose, but here's why. We expect ourselves to know the greatest value that we can give to the world right now. But we're still getting to know ourselves. And the best way that I've found to uncover my purpose is through action. So I found that when people start to shift their focus from this grandiose goal of finding their whole life's purpose to just finding something that will give them purpose and meaning for now, that's when they start to make progress. And it's really the same teaching, but in different words that we hear all the time focus on the present and be grateful for what you have here and now. So if you apply those teachings to finding purpose, you're focusing each day on what feels meaningful here and now in this present moment. In my experience, doing that not only helps me learn more about myself and what truly does give me meaning, but that's also when more doors start to open and opportunities almost magically present themselves sometimes. Yeah. And imagine if you figured out what your purpose was at the age of 24 or 34 or 44, would that be your purpose for the rest of your life? I mean, I hope not, right? Because I think that as we go through life at different ages and at our various life stages, we are not only shifting our lens and our and our vista, we're actually gathering so many more arrows in our quiver. We are learning so much and gaining so much wisdom that if we stopped and just stopped evolving at a certain point, what a what a loss that would be for the world, right? If we couldn't yeah. bring more and more evolved and nuanced bits of ourselves to the thing that we want to do. And as I was writing this book, it's funny because I started writing this book as a guide to finding purpose in work, how to do work that matters. And partway through the book, it, I started actually fighting with the editor and going back and forth. And thanks to that editor, actually, the book is a much bigger book because we got to a certain place and I said, I just, I can't write a guidebook about purpose where it's like chapter one, problem solution, chapter two, problem solution, chapter three, problem solution, because purpose doesn't fit into a neat little box. And I had this visual in my head that was super complicated. It was like when you're younger, you care about certain things. And when you're older, you care about other things. And even though you might have like a general direction in your life, that also might change because even if you know who you are, 
the world around you changes. And so the book sort of went from being part of this guidebook series about finding purpose to becoming limitless, how to ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life. I mean, the, the book in and of itself had this sort of meta moment where it was limited by this idea of a book about using your work to create a good life would be until we finally made the book itself limitless by allowing it to live into this larger piece. But I felt so constrained in the beginning because I was trying to make purpose this, if you figure out your purpose in life, then here's your path forward. When in fact, none of us figure that out. It doesn't just stay cemented as that. I agree completely. It's like we expect to have our life path decided at age 25 or 35 or 45. But the more we identify with our vision at that time, the less room that we leave to discover more about ourselves. So then you're in retirement wondering why you're not fulfilled. And it's because you let your 25-year-old self determine your whole life path and never allowed any room to question it again. It's just so funny because we're taught job loyalty and follow through. But really the best thing that we can do is to check in with ourselves as often as possible and just always leave room to tweak our paths. Otherwise, we're just limiting ourselves, which (laughs) is the title of your book. But there are so many other ways that we limit ourselves too. So where do these limits that we place on ourselves come from? I think a lot of the limits that we place on ourselves come from other people. There are these like insidious ideas that sneak into our head and they take root and they they grow forests. (laughs) Then we get stuck, right? And we can't end up seeing the path forward. And they are things as innocent as your fourth grade teacher maybe having a comment saying, oh, you know, it seems like math isn't your forte, but you're pretty argumentative. Maybe you should be a lawyer. Ha ha ha. And then you spend the next 15 years of your life creating an academic path that puts you to law school until one day you're sitting in law school and you look around and you go, why the hell am I here? I don't want to be here. I don't want to be like any of these people. I'm not interested in any of the subject. I certainly don't find myself compelled by any of the teachers. I've made a huge mistake. Hashtag ask me how I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, that sounds a bit personal. You're like, but that seems really detailed. I grew up thinking that I was going to change the world. Like you, I've always wanted to do something to solve big problems. And I spent a huge amount of time thinking, well, if I'm going to change the world, who changes the world? Leaders change the world. How do you become a leader? You get elected to become one because that's who leaders are. And I knew that I wasn't good at math because I got that comment. So I figured I wasn't going into business and I wasn't going to be a CEO. And the other leaders I knew were elected officials. So I thought, I'll be an elected official. What's the route to becoming an elected official? Usually the law. So I pursued a career that would, or an academic career that would put me towards law school until I looked around and I thought, that's not what I want to do. And I ended up dropping out of law school and interestingly enough, volunteering on Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. And he won. And I ended up working in the White House office that created AmeriCorps, which is the national community service program that over a million young people have served in to get college tuition in exchange for community service. And I learned while I was in the White House that, in fact, there are lots of other ways to be a leader and lots of other ways to change the world that weren't just being the person who was out front in the spotlight. And it was because I had had this image in my head because 
that's what you see in front of you. And so you think the only way to do something is what everyone else is telling me without saying, well, I don't actually necessarily love being the person who is the one in the spotlight, being the person who is the one in the corner office. But you have these definitions from everyone else about what success looks like. And so we go along this path in our life, um, having success defined by us, by other people, until one day we turn around and we say, wait a minute, actually, that doesn't feel like success to me. And it starts with these insidious side comments that we think are definitional, when in fact, they really are just throwaway lines from people who don't have crystal balls or Ouija boards. And then we, you know, get stuck in this unreachable ideals like follow your bliss right, and follow your passion and lean in. The idea of lean in being there's one myopic, unflinching route to success, the fastest, most efficient way to the corner office, when in fact, maybe that's not what we want. But if that's what society is defining as success, we spend all of this time gathering up the gold stars and filling in the check boxes along the route to someone else's success until one day we turn around and we look behind us and we say, if all those check boxes are full, why do I still feel a little empty? Is there a way to know that or to anticipate that before we actually go through all of those steps, though, and get to the point of realizing we still feel empty? How do we start to look ahead and decide earlier so we don't waste all that time if something's right for us or not? And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. How do we start to look ahead and decide earlier if something's right for us or not? I think it's a tricky question because I think it's hard until we're in it to necessarily know what it is. I think there's this idea of like fake it till you make it. And I think fake it till you make it is terrible advice because it tells us to fake something and succeed at it without really knowing if we are actually going to want the thing that we're faking. I think we don't leave a lot of room in our life for failure. And I like to see failure as fulcrum and not finale. 
I was speaking just yesterday at, at Harvard University at their Office of Career Services, and these are, as you might imagine, exceptionally achievement-oriented kids who have never really failed at something. And they've got a lot of people who are counting on them to be successful. And somebody brought up a question of like, well, what do we do? How should I be thinking about using my summer opportunities? And I said, you should use them to fail, right? To learn about yourself, to figure things out, to try things on and decide what you like, and most importantly, what you don't like. And she looked at me as if I was speaking a completely foreign language. And and I thought it was a fascinating moment because I looked at her and I said, you know, the only failure you can't come back from is death. <laughs> Pretty much other than that, you can figure it out and it's going to be a learning opportunity. And I think she was so shocked at the idea that failure is okay. But I think that's how we figure it out before we get too deep into something. And it also starts by asking a lot of questions of ourselves. And I think the first thing is to ask ourselves, what do you really care about? What is the driving force in your life? What is the big problem that you want to solve or the business that you want to build or the, the cause that you want to serve? And figuring out what that calling actually is, even if it's just a lowercase c calling and not an uppercase c higher calling. I love that because I think my view of failure, what really changed for me was realizing that the less I identify with, the better off I am, which sounds kind of strange because I think we love finding our identities. We love taking personality quizzes. We want to know who we are. Well, when we get a label, it's easy, right? It's like it's yeah. neat and it's clean and it's a little box and then we know where to go. Yes. But then the more we identify with, the more we lock ourselves into that identity. And it's just funny because the more aware that I am and the more I work on myself from the inside out, the more things I find that I was completely sure about in my 20s that now don't resonate with me at all. And I think, what if I had let that girl, that younger me, pick everything in my future? So my challenge has been just identifying with less. And it's even changed the way I view failure because now I can fail in a way that I don't see myself as that failure. It's not personal. It's not me. It's just an obstacle and I need to reroute. So I think goals and self-discovery are a balance because on one hand, it's great to have a roadmap of the direction that you're going. But on the other, you don't want it to be so rigid that you can't pull off the road to discover and enjoy the view. And maybe you'll even find something there that will change your final destination altogether. And that's okay. Yeah, It might actually even be the best thing for you. Well, I think there's just a huge amount of pressure that we should have it all figured out. And certainly these kids at Harvard, I mean, I was like, listen, here's the big secret. Nobody tells you. None of us have it figured out. None of us know what we're doing. We're just getting better at pretending like we do. We're just wearing nicer clothes. We I'm in my late 40s and I'm literally twice their age or more. And I'm looking at them and saying, it's not that I'm better than you. I've just been running this race for twice as long. I'm further along on the track because I'm you 25 years later. Like, it's just like I didn't sprout out of the womb like a fully formed adult who knows who I am and knows of my passions in life. In fact, three years ago, I was running an executive search firm. I was doing a completely different job. If you had told me then that I would have written this book and I'd be sitting here at Harvard and I'd be talking to all of you about this framework, which 
by the way, I hadn't even come up with yet, I would have laughed in your face. I would have said, like, I'm going to be on the Today Show talking about this thing. Not a chance. What are you, crazy? I'm going to get up on stage and I'm going to give speeches? No way. So here I am in this completely other world. And it's because I let myself be open to that opportunity. In fact, if you were to ask me, like, what advice I'd give my younger self listening to this podcast, I would say a podcast recorded over the internet that people listen to on a mobile phone. Like none of those <laughs> things existed with my younger self. And so even if you feel like you know yourself, which, you know, as we've discussed, you don't, even if you think you know yourself, the world around you is going to change so rapidly that being open to opportunity, like maybe you're driving down the highway to use your example and you decide to get off because you want to get a snack or have to use the bathroom. And right there, there happens to be some wacky, weird museum of, I don't know, umbrella covers or something, which by the way, does exist. I've seen it. You might decide to go in there and then you might miss the appointment that you have right after because you're doing something else that's interesting. But guess what? It's interesting. So why not go down that path? I want to go back to what you said about fake it till you make it. Because on one level, I think so many of us feel like we're faking it the whole time anyways. So the fake it till you make it mentality feels freeing because we feel less alone and that so many of us deal with imposter syndrome. So how do we differentiate whether we're limiting ourselves by faking it or if we're just feeling like a fraud while we grow into a new role, which is normal? So when I was 21 years old, I walked into the White House for my first real like grown-up job. It was intimidating, as you might imagine. <laughs> I had dropped out of law school. I hustled on the campaign. I made friends with somebody who was uh, bringing all the volunteers into the White House, the ones that didn't actually get paid jobs after the election happened because they weren't in the inner circle. And I was decidedly not in the inner circle. But I walked in as a volunteer and there were not a huge number of us. So it was like a legit stepping stone. But I was literally wearing my mother's hand-me-down suits from the 80s. And so there I was, 21 years old of spit and polish and giant shoulder pads. And I walked in with this look on my face like I belong there. Like, don't ask me any questions because I belong here. And I would sit in the staff meetings and I would look around and all these bright young things who I assumed were all on the payroll because they were all inner circle people would walk in with their tattered newspapers and they would sit in the staff meetings waiting for the meeting to start and they'd be furiously scratching down notes in their notepad. And I thought, oh my God, their heads are so full of ideas, big ideas. And my head is full of none. What am I going to do? And I would sit there and I'd read the newspaper trying to find something. And then I would write stuff down on a notebook that meant absolutely nothing. And all the while, I was missing the conversations that were happening around me. I was missing the relationships that were forming around me. And I was so busy feeling this imposter syndrome and trying to look like I was smart that I wasn't actually being smart at all. And in fact, not only that, I missed the opportunities to get smarter. And it wasn't until I looked up from that and said, you know what? I have to acknowledge that I don't know if I belong here or not, but I've got to start finding some life raft in the sea because I'm drowning here. Like I'm obviously not going to make it and I have to figure it out. And I ended up befriending somebody who helped me really figure out how the game was played. And it was because of her that I got noticed by the boss. And it was because of that, that I actually got put on the payroll there. But it wasn't until I looked up and I said, you know what? I'm an imposter. Everybody else who's here, turns out none of us have worked in the White House before. We're all imposters. And it wasn't until I sat up and I said, 
I have to stop pretending like I belong and actually figure out how I do belong that I was able to belong. So what did that colleague say to you that you needed to hear in order to break you out of your own limiting beliefs at that time? So I had been spending about six weeks doing a bunch of data entry work, essentially, like sitting there, you know, typing in names of governors and where they stood on different policies. And the boss of this Office of National Service came up to me and introduced himself. Of course, I knew who he was, right? He ran the entire 92 campaign. He was a legend. He introduced himself to me because he's an amazing, humble leader. And I see you here every day. You seem like you're working hard. You want a project other than database entry? I was like, yes, (laughs) please. (laughs) Yes, please. And he said, well, so I'm sort of curious about something. It strikes me that John F. Kennedy's Peace Corps was successful from the very moment it was announced, whereas Lyndon Baines Johnson's War on Poverty was essentially a failure before it began. I'd like to be a success before we get started. Could you go figure out how? That's a big job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure, sir. I'll get right on that. So I put all of my stuff in my backpack and I am heading out the door to go to the Library of Congress to like look through the card catalog. Kids, that's where you actually would go find where the books were so you could read them to find out the information because the internet didn't exist and gather names of former Peace Corps volunteers and people who were policymakers in the war of poverty so I could figure out what the thinking was behind each of them and what the marketing plan was behind each of them and how they actually made these things happen. And as I'm walking out the door, the second in command of the office says to me, hey, listen, and he's this like six foot tall, like very smooth business guy. And he says to me, kind of leans over, which is like a little too much pressure. And he's like, so listen, he's a very busy guy, Eli Siegel, the boss of the place. Why don't you do this? You go do the research and then give it to me and I'll put a cover memo on it. I'll summarize and put a cover memo on it for you. How's that? Thanks so much. Go. And he sends me on my way. And as I'm walking out the door, a woman by the name of Janet V. Green, and she was always Janet V. Green, never Janet Green. Janet V. Green pulls me aside and says, hey, you know what's happening here, right? And of course, I was an imposter. I had no idea what was happening. I was like, no, maybe, yes, but really no. And she's like, he's going to take your work. You know that, right? Now, you could have hit me in the face with a two by four because I was like straight off of the truck. I was like, okay, right? Like it was like you drove me in from Farmville. I had no clue. I was 21 and didn't understand how this happened. And she says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go do the work. You're going to come back in. You're going to give it to him, right? So he can summarize it. But then you're also going to wait for Eli to leave and you're going to say, hey, your number two in command is going to summarize this for you, but I thought you might like the raw report tonight if you have time to read it. So I did that. And then I slowly backed away and then went home and cried in my ramen soup about how I wasn't even going to get the paid job that I hadn't even had yet. (laughs) I was going to get fired from this like volunteer job. And the next day I walk into the office and Eli walks right up to me and he says, that report was fantastic. I've asked my second in command to put you on the payroll. Thanks so much. And then he turns around and walks away. Second in command comes up to me and says, so I'm told I'm supposed to put you on the payroll. I did some research about what the lowest possible salary I could give you was, and that's $22,717 here, sign here. Poor guy just sounds so disgruntled. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's crazy because that is literally how I got put on the payroll at the White House. It's a crazy story. And I'm sure that's how business works, right? Where you have individuals that say, look, it's my job to look out for the CEO. I give me the report. I'll do it. That's his job description. But what I learned in that was he was not going to see my work. He was not going to see. That was my one shot to show him my smarts and my hunger and my tenacity and my my speed and my grit and like who I was. And it was going to be covered in the lens of someone else. And so the way that my mindset got turned around about whether I was an imposter or whether I was trying to fake it was having somebody just say, look, this is your chance. You have one shot to jump out of this plane and you got the parachute inside of your cranium, right? Either you use your brain and you show what you've got or you don't. And you're basically the only person who gets to decide that you're going to take the shot. I mean, what was the worst that can happen? I wouldn't gotten the job. The job, there wasn't even a job on offer, right? They were going to fire me from not being paid to go in and do data entry. Like the worst thing that was going to happen was actually not that bad. And the best thing that would happen, it was a huge upside. So I had to take that shot, but it was terrifying. But then here, here's the good news. I took that shot and it was terrifying, but it worked. And so I gained confidence. And then the next time you take a shot and it works, you gain confidence. And I believe that if you can dream it, and you can be it, I don't think is real. I think you have to start being it before you can dream it. Like you put one foot in front of the other and that shows you competence. And every time you show more and more competence, you can live with more and more confidence. And I think the difference between dream it to be it and be it and then you can dream it is that you can actually have bigger dreams if you start being the thing that you're hoping to be. Yeah, I think sometimes we think ourselves out of things. And that's where limiting beliefs come in. We have these limits in our belief systems that we can only really break out of through action. So you can have a big idea. And before you know it, all the reasons come up why it can't be done or why you can't do it. But if you just take a small action, you not only build momentum, but you also start to prove yourself in your own mind. And that's why I teach the importance of actually taking the time to reflect back on the progress you've made and celebrate your wins and then revising your action plan based on what you've learned and then take more action. So it's almost a game of back and forth. I think we underestimate the amount that we can accomplish just in really small daily actions. We can end up making more progress in a month of just these little tiny movements than an entire year of thinking ourselves out of our own ideas. Absolutely. I mean, they say like when people want to lose weight, like throw the scale away for the first month. Like, you know, you get on the scale and you think you're going to see a number and whatever that number is, you're disappointed because it's not what you expect. I ran three marathons and that sounds crazy when I tell you that I ran my first mile of my entire life when I turned 39 years old. I was picked last for every gym class team of my life. I went to computer sleepaway camp. I mean, I am not an athletic person naturally. But when I turned 39, I had two kids. I was not thin. I was just kind of there. But like parts of me just started to hurt. And I thought I'm about to turn 40. And if I'm not healthy when I'm 40, I'll probably be even less healthy when I'm 50. It just gets harder and harder. And so I tried to run and it took me six weeks to be able to run a mile without stopping. But I got to the end of the six weeks and I got to the end of the mile and I thought, huh, what if I could string two of these together? <laughs> what if I could string 
three of these together. What if I could string 3.1 of them together and run a 5K? So I ran a 5K. And to say I ran a 5K is generous. I would say that I finished a 5K. (laughs) I definitely had people with fashion glasses passing me. I had guys pushing double uh, jogging strollers up hills passing me. It was rough. But at the end of the 5K, I thought, huh, well, I didn't die. Maybe I could run a 10K. So I did a 10K. At the end of the 10K, I tried a half marathon. At the end of the half marathon, I thought, wow, well, I live in Boston. That's interesting. What if I run the Boston Marathon? And my husband politely reminded me that you have to qualify for Boston and that I was really damn slow. (laughs) So (laughs) having had a background in the nonprofit sector, I thought, well, you can also raise money to run the Boston Marathon. So I posted on Facebook, does anybody have a bib for me? I have this crazy, audacious dream. And within five minutes, 10 different nonprofit executive directors were like, run for us, run for us. So I started running. And in order to run, you have to raise money. So you have to make these big public announcements, like a public commitment strategy. I'm running. Please give me money. And every weekend, I would say I'm running 10 miles or 12 miles or 18 miles or 20 miles. Um, If you donate while I'm running, I'll match your donation or things like that. Or I would have little games. So everybody knew I was doing it. So I could it not do it? So then Marathon Monday comes along and it's 92 degrees. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be pretty hard. This is going to be worse than I expected. I've been training in the winter. I've been training in the early spring. It's now April and it's 92 degrees. And I have vasovagal syncope, which means that I tend to pass out when I get dehydrated. It's not an exciting syndrome except for that one small problem. So it's 92 degrees and I have to cover 26.2 miles. And how do I do it? I do it by taking one step after the next, after the next. Then you get to the 20 mile marker, which is the farthest you've ever run in training. And I'm thinking to myself, it's 92 degrees. I've got vasovagosyncope. Hmm. There are six miles left. That's a 10K. I've run a 10K. I could probably run a 10K. I'm going to be a marathoner for the rest of my life. No matter what I do, walk, crawl, run, I'm going to be a marathoner. And then the very next thought in your head is, oh my God, you're crazy. What were you thinking? You're going to die out here. (laughs) What are you, what is going on? What the fuck is wrong with you? And you have these two voices that are competing in your head. All the while you're like, step, 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 step. And you have to decide which one of those voices wins. And it's the self-talk that in that moment becomes your worst enemy because either you let the self-talk of you're going to die, stop running, there's a policeman on the side, tell him to let you off the course. And the self-talk of, oh my God, this is going to happen. You're going to do this crazy thing. Somebody's going to put a medal around your neck and one of those big foil superhero capes at the finish line you're going to be a marathoner. And so I think that we have to make this decision. It's this mindset reshift, right? Like we have to make this decision about which of those self-talking voices actually gets to be the voice we listen to. Exactly. And again, for me, that comes back to just disidentifying with more. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. 
It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. For me, that comes back to just disidentifying with more. The thoughts in our heads are just so intimate to us. So it's hard not to want to place more value on them than they deserve because our thoughts feel like they are the real us. But really, our thoughts are just habits. And the more we let the negative self-talk dictate the outcome, the louder those voices are going to be and the more often they're going to pop up. And so it's about learning to choose the thoughts that are for our highest good and then taking action on those over and over again until those thoughts become the habit. Yeah. And I think the best way to do that, I mean, they say that you are the average of the five people that you keep closest to you. And I so firmly believe that. I am on a competitive rowing team now because I discovered my inner athlete there at mile 20. I figured out which voice was gonna, I was going to listen to. And that competitive rowing team has women everywhere from age 24 to age 68. And these 68-year-old women are incredible. These women are like three sport athletes from their college days, like back before Title IX existed. Like they played basketball in college in skirts without any funding from the university, unlike the boys. They are unbelievably tough. And the women who are 24 are these NCAA former champions, and they are incredible. And so there's all of us in the middle who get to be with these women who are so strong and so good. And I work out with them every morning, and they push me 
farther past my limits than I ever knew was possible. And then I look around the people that I spend time with professionally, and I spend time with people who force me to up my game every single day, not because I'm trying to compete with them, not because I'm trying to do better than them or even match them, but because I watch them on a daily basis getting better and demanding the best of themselves. And it makes me want to get better and demand the best of myself. And I call those people my family, right? They're like the combination of the friends who you would pick as family, right? Like you have the family that you're related to, you're blood related. And then you have the family, the friends that you choose that you actually make into your grown up family. And I think surrounding yourself with a family allows you to have many more voices that tell you that you're great and that you can do great things. And if you share with them who you are and what you want to be and where you think you are when you're at your highest and best, they're the ones who keep you accountable to that. So I think that if the self-talk in your head is too loud, you got to find other people who counteract that. Gosh, leveling up my social circle was one of the best, but also the hardest things that I've ever had to do. But really, the people around you create your normal. So if all of your friends are limiting themselves in some way, they create your ceiling of what you think is possible. But it's all a process and it it takes time, but it does get easier. And that just reminds me too, as you were telling your story of how you were 21 years old and your mother's hand-me-downs with shoulder pads, I couldn't help but compare that at 21 years old, I was drinking Popov in a slutty Raggedy Ann costume in a frat house somewhere. (laughs) But if you had told me that story at that time in my life, I wouldn't have been able to help but compare because I would have said, wow, she's levels ahead of me. How am I ever going to catch up? I've just wasted my whole life. But now I'm at a place in my life where I am so fulfilled with what I'm doing. And I believe that it's making a difference. But I honestly needed those struggles to get to this place. So regardless of where you are or at what time in your life, comparing is just so toxic because we're all on our own unique paths. It's like comparing a Picasso to Adele. (laughs) They're different, but they're beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, I think comparison is... Comparison game is the root of all evil. I think the Buddhists say it's like the root of all uh, unhappiness. But I think that every time we step into this like comparison cage match, we all lose. Actually, I posted this year on Facebook, happy second day of school. And I posted a beautiful picture of my children. And here's why. I actually posted the whole story. I was like, here's why I'm saying happy second day of school. Because my kids on the first day of school were such unfathomable psychopaths <laughs> arguing and yelling at each other that they didn't even stop long enough to like pose for a picture. The picture that I wanted, the picture that I've taken every single day for the previous 13 years, right? They knew it was coming. They knew that it mattered to me. I have a pretty busy job. They knew that I had rescheduled everything so that I could be there for that one big shining moment. And I was so upset that I lost it. And I yelled at them with like all my fury. And then we drove to school in stony silence where I like choked back tears the whole time. And I'm not generally a crier, right? It was so upsetting. And then I spent the entire day basically fantasizing about ways that I would punish them. Will I get one of those giant shirts and make two head holes and make them stand in it until they get along with each other? Will I drop them off 20 miles from home and force them to figure out a way to to get home? Like I was, I was like fantasizing. And I called a friend of mine and he said, well, you could do that. He said, or you could just give them a do-over, like have a conversation and talk to them about 
why this was important to you and what it means and who you are as a family and what kinds of values you uphold in the community that lives under your house and tell them that rather than punishing them, we're all going to, and like, and yourself for having the reaction you had, maybe you could all have a do-over in the morning. And we had a do-over the next day and we had a lovely morning and a great breakfast, took a great picture. And it was in that space that was able, that all of us were able to find grace. And had I just been in this like comparison game where, well, that sucks. I didn't get the first day of school picture. Everything is lost. I would have missed that. So I think we have to turn the lens back on ourselves. And that's why the subtitle of my book is how to ignore everybody, right? Limitless, how to ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life. Because I think it starts with ignoring other people and not saying, oh, she was in the White House at 21. I can assure you that I was in the White House at 21, but at 20, I was drinking Everclear alcohol out of big rubber trash cans at a fraternity party (laughs) at University of Texas. Um, So you didn't see me at 20. You saw me at 21, right? So thank God social media didn't exist back then. But I think we only see at any given moment, the person who's being presented to us. And a lot of times that's, you're judging your bloopers by other people's highlight reels. And that it's not just unfair to you. It's frankly, it's cruel and abusive to ourselves to do that. It's true. I've found that with leveling up my social circle, I also have to become more aware of comparison. So now I'm hanging out with all of these really inspirational and successful people. I actually went to a friend's $19 million house this weekend. And that is not my life. Maybe it will be one day, but for now, I feel really grateful to be a part of it because they are, in a way, raising my personal glass ceiling. So I think it's easy to fall into this trap of feeling envy or picking apart if we think somebody deserves what they have. And I don't mean my friends with the $19 million house because I feel like of anybody, they deserve it. But we're all connected. So instead of focusing on the gap between those people and us, celebrate them and feel grateful for their success like we would if it happened to us. Because maybe they've been gifted to us to show us what's possible. Yeah. And here's where you can take it even further. You could say, boy, that person lives in a $19 million house. Okay. Is that something you actually want in your life? Maybe you do. And if you do, then you should pursue a career that gives you the kind of payout that allows you to have that life. Or you may say, you know, the $19 million house seems really nice, but frankly, I'd rather, if I had that kind of money, I'd rather start a philanthropy and give money to causes I care about. Or you might say, if I had that kind of money, I'd rather stop working entirely and spend years traveling around the world, right? So it's figuring out like the money is a metric of success. But it's only a metric of success in whatever power you give it. In my career doing executive search, we used to say that there were about eight different factors that would motivate anybody for any job. And they were things like the brand of the company, how inspirational was the leader, the number of new skills you would acquire, the geography, like where the job was based, the mission of the organization. Of course, money was one of them, right? And there are about eight factors altogether. And when I was doing search, if I heard somebody talking about how they wanted a raise, I would say, okay, great, money, check, right? And if they really wanted to acquire some new skills because they wanted to grow their career in a certain direction, check. And I would go down these check boxes And if somebody had all those, I was like, yeah, great. If they're qualified for the job, I know that they're going to say yes. 
because I know they're compelled by it. And what I failed to realize in the first few years was that I was selling them a list of checkboxes and I wasn't selling them something that actually had consonance with them, something that resonated with them. Once I understood that they wanted to make a certain amount of money, but what they cared more about was flexibility because they had young kids and aging parents, or they um, were endlessly curious about the world and wanted a job that helped them to travel, or that they were interested in eventually becoming an executive director or CEO. So they, while they had program experience or marketing experience or finance experience, they needed fundraising and development experience, right? Or something like that. And once I understood what their bigger picture, what their goals were, then I could say the money matters, but here's how the money matters to you. So it's just chasing the dollar or just chasing someone else's success keeps us really busy, but it doesn't allow us to have impact in what we care about in our lives. So if the $19 million house is something that you want, then that's awesome. And it's great that you're getting to spend time around people who have figured out how to make that happen and you can use them as role models. And if it's not, then you can liberate yourself from judging your progress based on their race. You seem to have these key moments of guidance from other people where somebody said something that gave you a new awareness and it kind of steered you in a new direction. But what if somebody feels like they don't have somebody like that in their life, though, and they have to figure this all out on their own? What should they be looking for to make sure that they're chasing something that would fulfill them versus what we're taught or what we see from other people? Because that can be really hard to differentiate between, especially when we are younger, when so much of our identity is coming from what we've been told and what we've been shown in society. Boy, that's a great question. And I'll tell you, in the 25 podcasts or so I've done about this book so far, I it has not been asked. And it is such a good question. I think that the premise of the question, that what if someone doesn't have someone to talk to? And I think what I would say is we put so much pressure on this idea of getting a mentor, capital M, mentor as if there's going to be one person who's going to be Yoda in our lives and they are going to shepherd us through. They are going to show us the path. And I think what I would probably say is don't worry so much about getting a mentor, get mentoring. I think that there are a lot of different people who in lots of different moments can provide aha moments. Now, for me, Janet B. Green gave me an aha moment but she wasn't a mentor of mine. It wasn't, she and I didn't get together once a month or once a quarter or even once a year to check in and talk about my career and my path, my goals in life. It was just that one fleeting moment. When I was in college, I happened to take a course from Sarah Weddington, who she was the lawyer who argued Roe v. Wade in front of the Supreme Court when she was 27 years old. In that class, she told me that she won the case, not because she was the smartest or best or most well-funded lawyer, but because she learned all the rules. She learned every rule of every procedural argument that you could use in court of law. And she danced circles around those old Texans in their cowboy boots. And 15 years later, when I was frustrated at the big giant search firm and I wanted to figure out how to do it better, I thought, well, if I don't like how they're doing it, I got to figure out how to do it better. Oh, I should learn the rules. And when I learned the rules, what I realized was that the way that these guys were playing the game was completely arbitrary. And so I started my firm because I figured out a better way to do it. So there are all these moments in time, whether it's Janet V. Green, who tells you something in a moment that is the thing that's going to shift your path, or Sarah Weddington, who plants a seed 15 years earlier, and all of a sudden you're like, aha, 
I know the way to go because I was given this lesson a long time ago. We're all gathering tons and tons of lessons every day and we don't know how they're going to impact us. So don't put so much pressure on having one singular person in your life who provides all the answers. And B, know that every conversation that you're happening, every podcast you listen to, every book that you read, every lecture that you watch... We have so much access to learning right now with the internet between TEDx talks and podcasts and masterclasses. You can take courses online from almost every Ivy League school for free. There's so much learning out there that I would just start gathering that up. And then if there's somebody who is on a podcast or is on a lecture or a television interview or something, and you like what they're saying, reach out to them. Reach out to them on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook and say, hey, I saw you. It's really interesting. I'd love to have a conversation. I do that all the time. And yeah, I've got this book coming out and I've got a career behind me, but I'm a nobody to some of these people. I mean, some of the people that I approached to blurb my book had never heard of me. They don't know who I am. And yet you have a conversation with one and that person leads you to the next and that person leads you to the next. And so I would say regardless of who you are, and even if you are super young and you don't have a big career behind you, I am so inspired by young people. I say every time I get on stage and I speak in front of thousands of people, Every time I get on stage, I speak and I say, here, here's how to find me at HeyLGO on all the socials. Please reach out to me. I'll get maybe one, maybe five at most every month who reach out to me. People don't actually do it. And so if you do it and you reach out, you're going to get great mentoring. You won't get a capital M mentor, but you don't necessarily need that. You need the person who's going to give you information that you could use right now, today, in this moment. You're so right. That actually reminds me of a story we told in episode 47. So Alex Benayan, the author of The Third Door, said that he had asked Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, if he could shadow him. And all of these employees were jealous and said, oh my God, I've always wanted to do that. So he told Tony, you know, a lot of your employees would love to do this. Why don't you let them? And Tony was like, you know, no one's ever asked. <laughs> so we tend to assume that, you know, the spot's already been taken. But really, most people are just as chicken as we are. We just have to match our self-confidence with our ambition sometimes. Well, and also, I think that the word ambition has been given a very dirty connotation, right? Like, we're supposed to have this, this faux humility. We're supposed to walk through life going, oh, not me. Oh, I'm not that important. Oh, no. You know, you would do this so much better. Somebody gives you a compliment. You're like, no, no, no. This was just an accident. And I think ambition's gotten a bad rap. And I think especially so for women, right? Think about every female CEO or political candidate for anything. Oh, she's so ambitious, right? It's like this dirty word. Like we're not supposed to be ambitious. Like nobody ever says about men, oh, they're so ambitious. They're like, oh, he's ambitious. Great, ambitious young man. Nobody ever says ambitious young woman. It just, it doesn't work, right? And here's what I have to say to that. I think that's a bunch of malarkey. I think that it is okay to be ambitious. In fact, I ask people this all the time. If there's a thing that you want to do more than anything else on earth, will putting yourself in a bigger office with a bigger platform, with more money, with a bigger title, with a bigger foundation, with a bigger megaphone, help you make more impact for the people that you love or the causes you hold dear? And they always say yes, mm -hmm. right? So my response to that is it's not ambition, it's your responsibility. Let's get there because 
why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we be in a place where we can make the maximum impact in this one big juicy life that we have on the people that we love and the causes we hold dear? Why are we holding ourselves back from that? Because we're worried that people are going to think we're ambitious? Because we're worried that people think, oh, I don't want to bother them. We're worried that people are going to think that we're a pain. Guess what? If I'm too busy and you're being a pain, I won't answer your email. No harm, no foul. But if I've got time and I'm sitting stuck on a tarmac somewhere, which I am almost twice a week, I'm going to send you a note back. And I may just send you to a podcast I recorded. I may send you to an article I wrote. I may say, hey, pick up the phone and call me. But you don't know. It's in those interactions that we create connection with each other. Where do you draw the line? Because I know a huge part of my own growth has been learning to say no to things. First, it happened as I outgrew my old self and just saying no to things that sounded fun at the time, but ultimately weren't activities that were going to elevate me. But then later, just in people-pleasing. And as women, I know people-pleasing can be a big one. So from someone who has experienced a lot of success in her life, how do we discern whether we're being selfish or whether we're just putting ourselves first in a good way and doing what's right for our futures? You know, it's funny that you say that about your old party friends. A couple of summers ago, I decided I just wasn't going to drink for the whole summer. And I remember the first reaction people had was like, are you okay? Like, were you diagnosed with something? Or is, is everything all right? And I was like, no, I just... Are you pregnant? <laughs> right. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be 48 next next week, so I hope not. But um, yeah, that would be a miracle baby. But I, um, but, I, but I remember thinking, no, I'm totally fine. Like, what do you mean? And, and then there was this concern of, well, oh, are you judging me? Because I, I stopped drinking for the summer. And then after that, once I realized I wasn't judging them, was like, is she still going to be any fun? Right? <laughs> like, what's going on? <laughs> and then once we got past all of that, they were fine. And then they stopped caring. We think everybody's staring at us and they're so busy thinking about themselves that, in fact, they don't really care all that much. I think there's a great Eleanor Roosevelt quote that goes something like, you would stop worrying what other people thought of you if you realized how little they did. <laughs> I think that's a great quote. But to your question, I love to say yes to things because I firmly believe that there is an adventure around every corner if you just open your eyes and see it. When my son was about six years old, we were on subway and we, we got off the subway and all of a sudden there was like a parade of elephants marching down the street and it was like the circuits had come to town and they were like doing the promenade where they walk the elephants from the trucks into the arena. And he had this look on his face that was like his entire universe shifted. And I thought to myself, oh my God, my son is going to grow up in a world where at any given moment, a parade of elephants might walk down the street. How wonderful is that, right? Like, what if we lived in this universe where we could always just say yes to everything? And so when I was at this point where my kids were little, I was super involved in my community, on a bunch of boards, involved in politics, and also growing my business. I founded my last business when my eldest son was six weeks old. So, you know, that's a bad idea, but I couldn't not do it. I, I had to. I, as I said, I'd sort of figured out the rules of the game. I figured out the solution and I knew I could do it. I was involved in everything and I got some advice from a, a great woman that I knew. Again, this is a mentoring moment. I would call her a mentor, but she's not somebody that I check in with a ton. She just, this would happen to be a lunch that we had, and she gave me this great mentoring moment. And the advice she gave me was the best and also hardest piece of professional and personal advice I ever got. And it's this you're just not that important. And that's kind of hard to hear because at the moment, I thought I'm pretty important to my family, to my community, to my business. But the advice she was giving me was, if you were trying to be that important to everybody and all things all the time, 
you're actually not really being that important to any of them. And you have to figure out where you are that important and really show up for those things. So I started doing some research about how to say no to stuff. And all I could find were articles about why to say no to things. And it was frustrating to me because I knew that there was like a better way to do this. And then I started researching, why do you say yes? Why do you say yes? How do you say yes? And I couldn't find anything there. So I had to do some thinking about the questions I ask myself. And I basically came up with this four question series that I ask myself. And it's selfish, right? It's completely selfish. It's super Machiavellian, but you got to start somewhere. The whole charity begins at home. Let's start with ourselves. Number one, will this thing advance my goals? Will giving this piece of advice, will taking this meeting, will having my brain picked, will saying yes to this sucker punch bake sale of an ask allow me to get any further down the road towards my goals? Can I see myself on the other side of this further along the path? And if the answer to that is yes, you say yes. If the answer to that is no, you move along. The second question is, will doing this help someone else. And if doing that thing will help someone else and you can see a clear way to do it, you can also make a decision. Is it yes or no? Number three, will doing this thing bring me joy? And if it's not going to help you and if it's not going to help someone else necessarily, but if it's going to bring you joy, then yeah, I'd say yes all the time. Why not? And the last thing, and I think this is really the most important. And if your listeners remember any one of these four questions, the question is this, is there someone else who should do this or it would be better suited to do this? And if the answer to that is yes, then make that introduction, or you can say no and let them do it. Most of the time we get asked to do things because somebody sends five different emails out asking lots of people for help, or you're on a group text chain, or maybe you're just the closest proximate heartbeat. Not because they've spent weeks and months researching that you are actually the only person who can solve this problem. And so I think that if we spend a little bit of time figuring out how we say yes to things that makes it a lot easier and a lot less guilt-inducing to say no to things. It feels a lot less selfish because we're not trying to put ourselves into the solution for every problem. We're really trying to make sure that we show up for the solutions where we really are the solution. Ooh, I love those questions. They're like what I call thought cycle disruptors because when you're in it, It's hard to read the label from inside the bottle. Yes. So I love having those questions to act as sort of a lifeboat when you're drowning. Yeah. And I can share that. Got in the podcast notes, I've got some blog posts where I talk about this. And I share this with a lot of my friends who are busy, who are pulled between lots of different things, whether they're older or younger. They've got, we all have a lot of different demands on our time. And if you think about your goals in life, like what is your big calling that you want in your life? This gravitational force, this thing that's bigger than you. And at the same time, you say, well, is the work I'm doing on a daily basis connected to that? If you think about your to-do list, your to-do list and your goals might not match. And what's even worse is that the email box that you're a slave to, that you spend all day long trying to empty, probably doesn't even match your to-do list, which definitely doesn't match your goals. And so you've got this calling. You've got to figure out how to get more connected through the work that you're doing every day. And then you've got to figure out whether or not that work is contributing to the kind of life that you want to create. And so that's sort of the underpinning of the book is this idea of being limitless draws you to this idea of consonance and that people who are in consonance understand how much calling they want, how their work connects to that calling, whether or not that work contributes to the life or the lifestyle that they want to live, and then how much control they have over the elements of connection and contribution that lead towards fulfilling that calling. 
Well, thank you so much for this. I'll link to everything we mentioned in the show notes, including your book, Limitless. So for listeners who are interested in learning more about you, where's the best place for them to connect? So they can find me on all the socials at HeyLGO. That's H-E-Y-L-G-O. Hey LGO. Um, they can also find me at heylgo.com. And if they want, and I know you said you love quizzes, I've actually put together a quiz, limitlessassessment.com. And there they can take a quiz. It's got about 60 questions, takes about 10 to 15 minutes, and it will allow them, it'll walk them through the four C's of calling, connection, contribution, and control. And at the end of it, they'll get a beautiful radar chart that shows how much of each of these elements they currently have in their lives and how much of each of these elements they want to have in their lives. And it'll give them some tips about things that they could do to go about getting more of whatever it is that they want. So all of those things will be on those sites that I shared with you. But we also have a specific website for your listeners. And I think it's lauragassneraudding.com slash mindlove. So all of those links will be there. Okay, friends, your action plan today is to create an action plan. Pick an action that will move you closer to your goal today. It helps to brain dump everything that you need to get done and then break those things down into really small 15-minute tasks. Then just start doing. Even if you only have 30 minutes each day, even less, you'll be surprised at what you can accomplish. There's a reason why the busiest people get the most done. They make time for their priorities. All of the links in this episode, including Gary's best books, are at mindlove.com slash 065. We have some really amazing sponsors in this episode, and the good news is you can support Mindlove by supporting my sponsors. Also, if you know anyone who could use or would love a little bit more mind love in their life, please share the podcast. You can share it straight from the podcast app or CastBox or whatever you're listening on, or you can even screenshot it and share it across your social media pages. To stay inspired between episodes, don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com or text MORNING to 444-999 or visit me on social media at mindlovemelissa or at mindlovepodcast. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 